0: This is the Nouvelle Nouvelle podcast, the new news and all things middling old, brought to you by the Ohio State University Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, CMRS. I'm your host, Steve Barker, PhD candidate in Old English. Every two weeks, I sit down with a visiting lecturer or an OSU faculty or grad student to talk about their work and working lives, covering everything from the much-disputed decline and fall of the Roman Empire in late antiquity to the early modernity of the printing press, bustling international trade, and renaissance humanism. Our scholars discuss inter alia, Beowulf, Chaucer, and Shakespeare, da Vinci and Michelangelo, the mystics and martyrs of the medieval church, nuns, monks, and scholars, warriors, and queens, the birth of university, science and alchemy, fairies and the fantastic, and the ever-rising middle class with all its familiar exuberance and anxiety. Welcome to Nouvelle Nouvelle. Hello, this is Steve Barker with the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, and I'm talking today with author Chris Woodyard, uh, who's written the Haunted Ohio books, and she is also our keynote speaker uh, for the popular culture in the deep past, Fairies and the Fantastic, Um, and her title is The Many Roads to Fairyland, I believe. Yes. And today we're going to be talking uh, about ghosts and hauntings of various sorts, um, her career as a writer, um, maybe some of her, the ghosts uh, of Ohio State, perhaps some of her memories from here, and maybe a little bit about uh, the so-called alt-ac. but we'll see how it goes. That's the alternate, uh, alternate academic uh, sort of, so becoming a writer outside of the academy. It's a sort of fancy term for those sorts of things. So welcome. And it's a pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here in my old haunts. Yes.
0: Um, So when did you first become interested in ghosts?
1: First grade, I think. Or maybe I was even afraid of them before then. But I wrote my first book in first grade, and it was about a witch. So Supernatural goes back a very long way. Ah. But it seems to, it's a family sort of a trait to see and sense these sorts of things. My grandfather and his father and uh, my daughter, for example, all have this ability. And uh, it's kind of unsettling because growing up, it was the 50s, and everything was very scientific. Mm -hmm. And none of this existed. You know, I was told, oh, you have a really vivid imagination. (laughs) So um, eventually my grandfather said something about his dead brother walking into the room, and I'm like, you see them too, which was quite the revelation, and um, went from there. But um, yeah, I've been in- interested in the in the supernatural for a very long time.
0: So uh, what do they actually look like? I am curious about that, because I have no, I don't have it, obviously. Um, it, yeah, well just tell me. I they,
1: they look solid, they look like real people. Hmm. Um, Unless they do something odd like walk through a wall or just disappear or no one else in the room can see them. Uh, it's it's quite interesting because sometimes I'll go into a, a place that I've never been before and I don't know anything about it. Because I make a rule that nobody's supposed to tell me anything about the site. And I don't do any research mm-hmm. before I go in. Um, I was up at Mansfield, for example, at a theater. And there was a ghost in the... Um, recording booth or you know the projection booth Hmm. and he's like hi my name's pete and he's just real friendly cheery 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 and so i'm i'm telling the people who had brought me there and they were very disappointed because they didn't know any pete and they were looking for a murdered guy in the basement Hmm. who was also there but i was interested in this other one because he was so much really there so somebody said, well, maybe you ought to talk to the historian in town here, who's really, a, he's an expert on the theaters. And so I called him up, and I said, you know, I was just up at the theater there and uh, was looking in the projection booth, and I wondered, you know, was that the original equipment? Because the ghost had said he'd brought it with him. Mm-hmm. He says, no, that was brought from some other theater. And I said, oh, really? And uh, who was the projectionist there? And he says, oh, his, his name was Pete. He's, <laughs> he's dead now. And I, I didn't tell him why I was asking these questions because he would have thought I was crazy or something, <laughs> which is not an unreasonable <laughs> idea.
0: So how – so they look exactly – so how do you – How do you tell? How do you get through life? I don't know. Well, they're always... not everywhere. They're okay. not
1: everywhere. It's it's not like you're just walking down the street and you're like, oh, there's a ghost. No, it's it's more I have to be looking. Hmm. I have to actually – say oh i'm feeling something weird in this mm-hmm. historic site or or sometimes it just um surprises you i, w- mm. I was staying at uh, in virginia in williamsburg a place called the fort magruder inn mm-hmm. it was a site of a civil war battle a lot about 7000 people died there mm-hmm. and i woke up and you get you know how you feel somebody's watching you and there mm-hmm. was a soldier standing there very very young and he was wearing like a butternut Confederate uniform, and he half of his face had been shot away, mm. um, and he was sort of as they used to do. They would tie the arms and the legs together to keep the limbs straight for burial, mm. and that's how he was just standing there tied, and it was really a very frightening experience. Yeah, but, but I certainly wasn't expecting it. I didn't know anything about this place. Mm. I, you know, I was just staying there for a, as a hotel, but. That's what. That's the sort of thing.
0: That did you say you just woken up? Was that one? Yeah, I was okay. just woken
1: up, and um, he came back three nights, hmm. and I kept saying, "Please go away. You're scaring me. <laughs> Please."
0: So, so maybe uh, it's sort of when you're more receptive. No,
1: uh, no? because no. I, it happens in in broad daylight. Too. Okay. Yeah. It, it, otherwise, you could say, "Yeah, hypnopompic uh, vision." Well, no.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Trying to be.
1: Uh, and no, no. Uh, you try to look for the re- the reasonable explanation mm-hmm. because when you look at the literature of ghosts and you look at like what people are writing about you know their personal experiences online a lot of it Mm -hmm. is i just woke up but i'm certain i was awake and it's like well no it's possible it was a waking dream and certainly Mm -hmm. it was possible that what i was doing was a waking dream because i was certain i was awake Mm -hmm. but (laughs) you never know so i try to look for some reasonable explanation i'm not out there with um spirit boxes or electric Mm. equipment. (laughs) It's just, I take notes, I walk through a place, I take notes and then compare with what the people have seen Mm. in the place. And sometimes it's just really unsettling. Um, And and sometimes Mm. I don't write about those things because there's Mm. still family in the area and perhaps there's a suicide in a house and I've run across him and he's very unhappy. Um, so that 's uh it 's a difficult situation i and in other cases i, I tell my husband that perhaps ninety five percent of the cases are are not really ghosts mm-hmm. it 's more somebody has a problem that they can 't deal with, and so somehow mm-hmm. it 's easier to deal with the idea that we have a ghost than it is to deal with my personal terrib- yeah, terrible sense. problems
0: hmm. so yeah, that makes me think. What are your research sort of um what do you what do you uh I do you it sounded almost like you're sort of out on call with some of these Well I
1: I was. I'm okay. no longer making house calls okay. which is it's just too draining. It's mm. too exhausting. I would bet. <clears throat> but uh you know, as I said, occasionally I'll run across something at a historic site. Mm. But um not just walking down the street or at the grocery store. Mm. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> that would that would make life difficult.
0: Well yeah, uh, sorry. There must be some difference uh between sort of you set out to write a book versus sort of you, I imagine you're always sort of collecting, well, there's material you're collecting for a book versus, ah, this just popped up and now I have to deal with it.
1: Yes, that's that's right. And when I was writing the books, I did get calls and, and I mm. would go out to people's houses or in some cases, people would just write me and say, this stopped or we moved, but here's what happened. Mm. And so there's no way to really go back and research that. Um, other times, I, I For the Bicentennial of Ohio, I did uh, Haunted Ohio 5 and did Mm. more historic-type sites. And in some cases, people would tell me stories about their buildings that were not true, but that was the local folklore. Mm. And, you know, you'd go back and you'd look in the newspapers and you couldn't find any trace of that terrible train wreck (laughs) where they laid the corpses out in the basement. So, and today, there's a number of... um, what are they called? They're called paranormal attractions as opposed Mm. to a haunted house attraction where you've, you know, got actors and things. A paranormal attraction is where you bring people in and they do an investigation and they pay to stay the night and and to check the place out. And an awful lot of those have fake backstories. It just absolutely drives me insane (laughs) when, oh yes, there was a guy that murdered 30 children. And it's like, no, that person never existed. This didn't happen. But it makes a good backstory, and well. it's unfortunate,
0: because it's, it's bad history. Mm. This, the paranormal uh, thing is sort of like what you were talking about at lunch, I think, at the Mansfield, which is real, obviously, but uh, where they would lock people in, uh, yes. where people request to be locked in overnight.
1: Right. They used to do that. I don't know that they do that anymore Mm. uh you can still take night tours of the ohio state reformatory beautiful old building roman romanesque Mm. architecture it looks like a castle (laughs) very ennobling um but yeah they had a solitary confinement cell and uh it's a it's a really fascinating place Mm. i wouldn't want to be wandering around in the dark though
0: no (laughs) so tell me um I was looking on your website, and I ran across the name Charles Fort. And yes. I think you, you said you are a, a Fortian.
1: I, if, if I label myself anything, I guess that's what I would label myself. Charles Fort was a collector of anomalies. He looked into he, – he went to the British Library and other libraries and looked at scientific journals mm. and newspapers, and he collected odd occurrences mm. like fish falls or one of my favorites is uh, the faces in the window. It's faces that somehow appear on a sheet of glass Hmm. and they're said to be, they called them lightning daguerreotypes because the legend would be that somebody was sitting at the window and got hit by lightning and their face was somehow. Ah. There's a very famous one down in, um, I think it's Alabama, Georgia, Hmm. Pickens, Pickens, Georgia, the courthouse, Pickens County Courthouse where a, supposedly a slave was hiding in the attic and lightning bolt hit in his face was forever etched in the wow. window glass. Very dramatic. Uh, but there are tons and tons of stories like that. Uh, there was a whole flap of them in San, around the Sandusky area in the 1870s. Now, is this just some sort of thing that went viral in mm. a 19th century sense or were these things really happening? Were hmm. people misinterpreting, you know, they just started looking at their windows and started seeing faces? I don't know.
0: Are they still around? Can these be seen?
1: No, because uh, in a lot of cases people painted over them
0: uh.
1: or they broke the windows or, you know, it would be interesting if you yeah. could find a house where you had the address in the in the um, actual newspaper that you could go look at. but. Mm. I would think that much of this glass would have been replaced by then, Yeah. but in anyway, Fort collected mm-hmm. those kinds of stories, and he kept an open mind. He didn't really care whether they were true or not, but he tried to get reputable sources. Mm-hmm. As I said, scientific journals were a lot of what he collected, and um, his idea was that just look at the patterns. You know, you don't need to make a judgment about it. But when you see a pattern developing,
2: mm-hmm. it's
1: interesting whether y- you can prove anything by it or whether there's any significance to it. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I'm always looking for patterns. I mean, it's, somebody could say, well, it's like looking for faces in clouds. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly they're right. But it is interesting to see some of the patterns. Um, I'm not sh- I don't think I mention in my talk the women in black. They're kind of a native homegrown banshee. Hmm. And you see these patterns of these appearances in particularly the coal mining country. Uh, It's a woman dressed as a widow Mm -hmm. with a veil over their face. And they're running around in the dark, scaring people. You can't ever catch them. And suddenly they disappear. Ah. Very, very creepy. Now, some of them you, you can see maybe this was somebody like a guy in disguise because they're very mm-hmm. tall sometimes um or maybe it was just somebody mistaken for and they just got lost in the dark you you mistook mm-hmm. but I, I like looking for groups of stories um and try to figure out you know was there any truth to this was this just a you know community hysteria mm-hmm. that sort of thing
0: do that with these in particular uh are the women ever sort of uh, accused of doing anything, sort of devious, or are they just spotted? and
1: Sometimes they are. Um, they leap at people. Mm. Um, sometimes people get slapped. Mm. Um, a lot of it I kind of wonder. I, I have, I've done a, uh, a talk at the Costume Society of America on the women in black mourning disguise for criminals mm. because it was an extremely effective way of hiding your identity, because you had a veil, and no one would dare touch you. Hmm. No one would dare try to find out who you were under that veil. And a lot of criminals used that. Hmm. So were some of these women and black criminals? Possibly. <laughs> but um, it's, it's just a pattern that I, they, I observed, and it hasn't been written about very much. Hmm.
0: So that sounds like it's from your, uh, your latest work on the Victorian
1: Well, uh, there might be a couple in that book. Um, Most of the stories about the women in black are in uh, a book called The Ghost War Black, Mm. which has a whole chapter on them, and also In the Face in the Window, which is an Ohio
0: collection of historic ghost stories. Mm. So do you find most ghost stories do come from the Victorian period, or uh, I know before— before we're talking here, you mentioned uh, medieval ghosts, but are there also contemporary ghosts, sort of in contemporary garb? Or they tend to be—I mean, I guess they would have had to have died more recently. Yeah, but that,
1: that's that's true, and and that's one. The Victorians had a real bugaboo about trying to figure out where to go. Why do ghosts wear clothes? Mm. Because if it's the spirit of a dead person,
2: mm-hmm.
1: why would it have clothing on, and why would it have this particular outfit on? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of reports of, of ghosts in the Victorian era and before Elizabethan and Jacobean ghosts uh, dressed in shrouds or mm. dressed in burial clothing. And you still find reports of that today. People will say, I saw my great aunt who I couldn't go to the funeral and she was wearing such and such. Mm. And then somebody else chimes in, oh, that's what we buried her in. So goodness, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but yeah there's plenty of of modern ghost stories Mm -hmm. Um, there's lots and lots of sites out there where people put down their experiences and some of them you can tell they're making it up or it it sounds Mm -hmm. very literary or people have experiences over and over and over Mm -hmm. and it's almost like they're copying something they saw on TV but in any case there's a very active um, amount of paranormal folklore going on today uh, mm-hmm. it would be very difficult to collect unless you went into a very tiny corner of the world mm-hmm. because there's just so much I of see. it and you've got all the reality tv shows which are mm-hmm. bogus but well that's another story
0: they like their drama
1: they do like their drama and their black t-shirts
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> um So, yeah, this is sort of a micro place, I suppose, Uh, Ohio State University. Um, Are there some famous ghost stories from here?
1: Well, the odd thing is I was here for three years, and I never heard a single ghost story. And that is very, very unusual, especially for a campus this size, because Hmm. every college has at least one ghost story about a student died or a student committed suicide, And they closed up the dorm room Mm -hmm. or the dorm room is always haunted i never heard anything Hmm. anything at all and i was really kind of surprised um now after i left i moved into my vintage clothing store on chittenden and high across from the law school and that was haunted but that was the only ghost story from this area that i actually knew Hmm. except for there was a legend about Walhalla Drive, and there still is, but it's one of those very vague legends, and it's also, it, it seems to have grown with the years. Initially, it was just, oh, it's a haunted road. Mm-hmm. Fine. What's it haunted by? Oh, I don't know. It, I just know it's haunted. And it is kind of spooky looking, you know, the ravine and everything. But now I think it's, it's gone into a story of a, a murder, oh. a family murder. And that, you know, there may have been. I, I haven't looked into it recently. Um, I also heard that it was possibly a, an ostention of, of I think it was the, Volks, the girl on the Volkswagen floor. Hmm. It was a local, very sensational murder. Hmm. And um, I don't know whether that's just gone into local legend in association with that particular road because it's supposed to be a haunted road where is that it's called walhalla mm-hmm. drive and it's in clintonville okay. it's just north of campus yeah. sort of in that ravine area where they've got tunnels
0: yeah okay
1: it's spooky I, looking i have to say <laughs> so uh, but i never knew any stories that mm. were very specific about it I, that happened when i when we first moved to um ohio i live in green county and when I was first doing my ghost stories, you know, okay, what's haunted around here? Oh, Carpenter Road.
2: Mm.
1: Fine. What is it? Oh, I don't know. It's just a haunted road. And there were about a dozen different stories explaining what haunted it. Mm. And uh, one of them was the usual mad woman in the attic. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Oh, yes, there was an old woman that lived in this house at the turn of the road. And you could see her after death sitting up in the in the uh, Mm. window where she used to sit. Well, somebody told me that story, and then he says, yeah, we actually put a dummy up there, (laughs) so we (laughs) perpetrated the legend.
0: I did hear, no, I read um, the Hayes Hall. Yes,
1: there's There's supposed to be a legend about Hayes Hall. President Hayes. Yes, he supposedly let some Mm. after-hours students in, Mm. and they didn't recognize him until they saw his portrait. But, again, that's, that, was a, that was something I hadn't heard mm-hmm. when I was a student. Um, let's see. Whatever the house was where the presidents used to live, mm-hmm. uh, I did a presentation there, and there was a ghost of a young woman up in one of the upper floors mm-hmm. sobbing her eyes out. Um, I don't know what that was about. But mm. it was kind of a spooky house.
0: Is it um – just thinking about Hayes, there doesn't seem to be any um, psychic distress there. Do you find because it does? I don't have a lot of experience, but it seems like ghosts are usually upset about something. Again, um, they want justice for something. Versus Hayes, just sort of letting letting like the sort of kindly old ghost. Right. Is that unusual? No, for just to be a
1: you find both. You hmm. find uh, ghosts that are upset about something and want something righted. Um, oh, I left the will in my secret drawer, you know, let's go find it so my widow doesn't get evicted. Or, you know, the wronged woman who wants justice because she was murdered by her lover.
2: Mm.
1: But, um, no, there's plenty of friendly ghosts. I, mm. I always say if you were a good person, um, you will be a good ghost. You know, <laughs> death does not improve you. Mm. So if you were nasty, you're probably not going to be a great ghost. But, um, yeah, they they're pretty much as they were in life Mm. so there's plenty of people who stick around for some reason they just like their house or they feel they have to watch over their remaining spouse or children Mm -hmm. there's lots and lots of stories um particularly in the irish tradition and i'll Mm -hmm. be getting into that tonight about mothers returning to nurse their children Mm. uh, because they died in childbirth and uh, very, very sad stories, and yeah. and um, very common because it was a high, it was a common
0: cause of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, I have a five-year-old daughter, and I'd say she's probably more attuned to things than I am. Although I don't, she doesn't sort of, well, she might see things sometimes. Does anyway. she have
1: an imaginary friend?
0: She does not. Uh, I actually just asked her that a couple. Of, well, maybe she does now, but. She said no. I uh, probably I let her watch too much TV. They uh, <laughs> drive drives such things away. But no, she does have a very. Um, she likes to watch scary things, um, but then she likes to. Uh, but but then she'll have nightmares sometimes. Ooh. So she's she gets in over her head easily because she's very she's very brave. But then uh. she'll sometimes have night terrors. So, Ooh. I, I if there's a question there. I don't know how should I expose her to things.
1: I wouldn't too early, but yeah. they find their way, I guess. Mm. Um, I can remember, you know, watching very scary horror or science fiction mm. movies. And it's like, oh, you know, can't look away. Mm. But I'm terrified afterwards. Mm-hmm. So you do have to. And, and there is some benefit to being exposed to scary situations in sort of controlled environments. Mm. Because then you know, okay, I was scared, but I got through it. Mm-hmm. Nothing got me. The monster didn't come out from under the bed. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. And you, I mean, it's a it's a cliche term, but resiliency,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think it does help a little bit with that. I mean, obviously, if, if the child is having night terrors, there may be some other issue. But night terrors right. can also be just a developmental phase. They can That's be true. a vitamin deficiency. Mm-hmm. It It's hard to tell. Um, but... If there's nothing else wrong, why not? You know, just I tried not to expose my daughter to anything bloody or violent yeah. that was, you know, just really gruesome because I yeah. think that's unfortunate. The, that's where horror has gone. It's right. not the haunting of Hill House, the original one mm-hmm. with, with Julie Harris, where it's all suggested. Mm-hmm. It's an absolutely terrifying movie. As opposed to a slasher movie, where everything's predictable and and very gross.
0: Yes, you might like talking, if she's here tonight, to uh, Sarah Johnston, who's uh, in the classics department. Uh, She teaches a magic and witchcraft uh, Ah. class. But she actually mentioned Haunting of Hill House, recommending to the students how much better the— Original one was for that very Absolutely.
1: reason. Absolutely, I yeah. didn't. I didn't see the the remake of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it was getting good reviews, but mm-hmm. they changed the story completely. And it's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, let's switch gears again, and I am curious about the early days of CMRS. Um, was I wasn't anything. there
1: at the creation. Well, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> But I think, oh, I don't know, I think I mentioned, so you are a, a graduate of this, one of the earlier graduates of the CMRS program. Really? Um, I, I think, since it was it was formed, uh, Nick tells me, I think, in 1965, mm-hmm. and you graduated in the 70s. hmm yeah. yeah. So anyway, I don't know if there's any special recollections or what were things like, um, in medieval studies back then? Well, I was I was so pleased to be here. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I had taken a course. I'd started out at Bowling Green in library science and mm-hmm. took a multidisciplinary course on medieval studies up there and just got absolutely hooked. And then mm-hmm. I realized they had a program here. How could you go wrong? Mm-hmm. And uh, came down here and it was just Delightful. I just was in my element. I spent so much time in the library, so much time, you know, rabbit holing. (laughs) My emphasis was on art history. Uh Um, Franklin Ludden was the chair of the art department at that point, and uh, Dr. Both Dr. Morgansterns were. Mm -hmm. uh, Anne Morganstern was my thesis advisor, and. uh, just had a, a, a wonderful experience learning how to do research. That, yeah. that to me was the key being here. I also very fondly remember uh, Dr. Alan K. Brown,
0: who hmm.
1: is known for reciting all of Beowulf by heart. Oh, wow. All
0: of uh, Beowulf. I, me.
1: He wanted to prove it could be done. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and I was like, oh my. And he had he had built or purchased a, a medieval stringed instrument. I think it was a kruth, yeah. and he would accompany himself as if he was the bard, um, reciting the entire six hours of Beowulf. Wow! Now he didn't do it all often at once. He would do shorter presentations, but it was just really striking to to hear it and um, to know that it. Yes, this was an oral. Form of art?
0: Yes, there's a fellow who does it now. um oh, is Benjamin Bagby, huh. uh, who came to campus huh. a couple of years ago. Okay. Well, uh, yeah.
1: Well, Dr. Brown unfortunately passed away mm. a while back, so um, he's passed the mantle on to someone yes, new. Yes.
0: Um, do you have any advice for uh, budding writers? I suppose, being a successful writer yourself. Uh,
1: my advice for young writers is always read, 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 read. Read everything. Read the cereal box, mm-hmm. Read, uh, but try to read something before they were out of, in the public domain. Don't just read contemporary mm-hmm. work because you end up sounding like the latest. For a while there, people were going to MFA programs and everybody came out sounding like Raymond Carver. Mm. True. It, it was so depressing. <laughs> So find your own voice. I'm not crazy about the word voice, but <laughs> there it is. Um, be unique. Don't don't copy. I mean, sometimes you do start out copying somebody, but you've got to find your own way. Hmm. And unfortunately, publishing is, today is about self-promotion. Mm-hmm. It's about it's not whether you're the best writer. It's whether you're promotable. Hmm. I look at the list of, you know, the sh- the people who are the authors of the things up for awards. They're all young, they're all attractive. <laughs> they all have interesting hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I saw a promotional sheet for some author a long, long time ago and it's like he plays the guitar and he's done this recording and he's done this this and this and he's like movie idol
2: handsome.
1: Mm. It's it's all about the image. Mm. And it's all about whether you can be promoted because it's not just about the book anymore. It's about social media. And it's about connecting with your readers. But for young writers, it's just read everything you can get your hands on and read a lot of different things so you can know what you like and mm. what you think works. And write, just write everything. And if you're a writer, you have to write. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to be urged. I I used to do, you know, when I was a kid, I had a a little garden shed and I'd set it up as an office and sat there mm -hmm. and write in my little typewriter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I think John Gardner calls that uh, wood shedding. Yes, yes. yes. Garden shedding. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But so you, you have avoided some of the the perils of publishing, right? Because you run your I own. Have. I have. I'm. I'm a completely self-published, so it's.
1: I always say I. You know I um, work for myself, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy it because I'm such a good boss. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was doing such niche mm-hmm. work. Uh, my very first book was actually a book, uh, a guidebook to the Dayton area, mm. and I thought nobody in New York is going to want this. You know, so let's just put it out. Mm. So I did. And it sold out in a year. And next, the librarian said, what are you going to do next? And they'd been very helpful helping me research the first book. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you need? We need a book of Ohio ghost stories. That was the first thing out of their mouths. Hmm. And so I said, sure, I can do that. I've got family stories. I've got personal stories. I've got friends who know about ghosts. I used to live in a haunted vintage clothing store. So... (laughs) I, you know, piece of
0: cake. Sounds so, perfect. So serendipity.
1: I, I thought, well, there's 88 counties. I can do this. There'll be one book. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't couldn't find. I. It took me till, uh, Haunted, Ohio five. It took about 10 years to get get stories from every county. There were just some counties that were really really difficult. So. Mm. At any rate, that's, that's where I went with that. And um, <clears throat> I was just talking to a friend of mine who has published conventionally. Mm-hmm. And he was being curious about, you know, costs and how do you mm-hmm. do it. And I, he's like, oh, well, can I ask what your profit margin is? And, you know, I'm giving him some figures. And he's just gobsmacked. He says, we need to sit down <laughs> and talk about this. Because the royalties you get as a regular published author are really pitiful. Um, compared to what you
0: can do if you find the right printer, it wouldn't three to five percent or something. Or yeah, it's it ten? depends
1: on you know how many you sell mm-hmm. and I understand. It used to be that you know if you were an, a beginning author, you mm-hmm. would get an advance, right. and even now they they hardly give advances. So mm-hmm. what are you supposed to live on when you when you're writing the book? Um, and then maybe I, I remember reading something like only 10 percent of books earn back their advances Mm -hmm. you know they just don't sell enough so it's a it's a very sexy profession people Mm -hmm. think oh it's glamorous being a writer well yes but (laughs) you have to sell books it's not just writing them Mm -hmm. it's the marketing of them and i used to teach self-publishing and there would always be very creative people there, and maybe they were really good writers, but they did not want to do the marketing. Mm-hmm. They wanted to hand it over to somebody else and make them do the work. Well, even now, though, conventional publishers, they ask you for a mailing right. list, they want you to do social media, they want you to do a lot of the publicity mm-hmm. that their publicity department would have done perhaps two decades ago. Right. So the market has really, really changed. And I'm not sure whether I could have made a go starting out now mm-hmm. because book sales are down for everyone mm-hmm. you know there's just uh there's fewer fewer sales, uh, even with ebooks and yeah. I know ebook sales are declining as well, and mm-hmm. I have all my books in the Kindle um format just because I figured you know it doesn't cost much just get it out there mm-hmm. but um I don't. Most of the people who read my things want a physical book, right. and I prefer a physical yeah. book. I don't, I don't have an electronic book reader.
0: No, I've tried to – I have books on my phone, but I rarely well, it's I'm just trying to get, stay off the phone.
1: Yeah, it's a different experience, and it's that, that kinetic
0: mm-hmm.
1: movement that somehow helps you understand and retain what mm-hmm. you're reading.
0: Yeah, like, where on that page was it? Oh, no, you, it's just one long, continuous right. scroll. Right, yeah. It goes away. Yeah,
1: it's really disconcerting. So I think we're seeing a return to the physical book, mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm pleased about. That is good. Yeah. But getting back to the actual, you know, I've had to do everything. Mm-hmm. I, I write the books, I edit the books, although I have some people who help me mm-hmm. with the editing. I certainly have input into the covers. I've had artists, though, that Mm -hmm. do the actual covers. And then I had to find distributors, which is even more difficult today. Yeah, Uh, I bet there would be. uh, The the distributors are very, very tight. They Mm -hmm. want Simon & Schuster or they want some big name rather than a small regional press. And a lot of the distributors who used to handle the independent publishers Mm -hmm. have gone out of business. Uh, And we will not name the entities who might have put them out of business. Um, In any case, when you are um, a self-published writer, you will do everything. You're wearing all the hats because you can't afford to outsource all of it. Um, Now, I did have a wonderful typesetter. Unfortunately, she passed away. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for another one. But... um, that's something I could learn to do, mm-hmm. but it's not my strength. And I, I really would prefer to just focus on, on the writing. Yeah. But it's – uh for a long time, maybe a decade and a half, I was out on the road every October and sometimes other times. Looking back, I'm not sure how I did it because I was <laughs> – you know, I'd wake up and I'd do a couple of drive-by interviews mm-hmm. for radio – and then go to some event, or maybe do a school, and they would want me to do multiple talks, to mm-hmm. do multiple classes, and then a library event in the evening, and then a TV show. Mm-hmm. So it was just a lot of out there, flogging and flogging, yeah. you know, really having to push. Um, and that's something that many writers don't realize is part of the job. Yeah. And a lot of writers are introverts. I'm an introvert. Um, so it's very tiring to mm-hmm. get out there and do the talks and do the presentations. So I'm retired mostly, mm-hmm. from, although I'm happy to be out of retirement yes. today.
0: <laughs> We're happy to have you. Thank you. Do you find – so you do a lot of blog work now? I do. That's, uh, Which just easier maybe than flogging the book for, it, it, for and hours in public. It seems
1: to help. I, I do that. I do Twitter, and mm-hmm. I, I run – four different Facebook pages Goodness. <laughs> because I'm helping a friend with, ah. with the Fairy Investigation Society page but um, yeah it's a, it's a full, almost a full time job mm-hmm. I mean just being a social media manager mm-hmm. um, so it's uh, more work than just sitting down and being inspired or sitting down and putting in your 2,000 words a day mm-hmm. that sort of thing That's one more thing I would tell students. You know, they, oh, I've got a book, but I just don't know where to start. I'm like, you don't have to start at the beginning. (laughs) That's really important, not to have to start at the beginning. I had a very dear friend who was an expert on a certain subject, and he wanted to write a book. And I'm like, great. You've got all these notes. Write the book. Well, I just don't know what the perfect opening chapter should be. (laughs) I'm like, stop. Do not do that. You know, start with the second chapter. Start Mm -hmm. with whatever chapter makes you most comfortable and then go back. And that's how I always do it. I mean, I don't start with the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's wherever I jump in and whatever I feel like working on that day. It doesn't have to go in sequential order. And a lot of people get sort of hung up on that, that you have to have the perfect opening sentence. Like, oh, there's only so many call me Ishmaels. (laughs)
0: Well I haven't let you talk about your talk this evening and that's mostly by design. I don't know if you do want to uh, chat about it. And not
1: not too much, because okay. I'm I'm kind of um, let's not, you know, spoil right. it spoiler alert. Okay.
0: <laughs>
1: well I think maybe we'll wrap up here.
0: Chris Chris Woodyard, it's been a delight to have you. Well
1: thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Nouvelle Nouvelle Podcast. Thank you as always to Fior Angelico, a Columbus Early Music Group, for our theme music. Until next time.